Hey now, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. What is the hidden value in your business? Well, if you knew the answer to that question, it wouldn't be hidden value, would it? Today, we're going to talk about some of the things that could add a lot of value, in some cases, almost the entire value of your business. And we're going to do it with an expert who can really take us inside what we're talking about. Of course, if you know me, you know I'm talking about intellectual property. I absolutely love it. It can add a ton of value to your business if you protect it properly and you monitor it to make sure that it's properly secured. Going to get into all that. We're going to talk about what happens if somebody does happen to cross the line and infringe. And we're going to do it with an expert, and his name is Dan Schulman, and he joins us today on the Inside BS Show. Dan, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I'm thrilled to be here and uh, thrilled to talk to somebody who's uh, half as excited about intellectual property as I am, I think. <laughs> I'm passionate about it, Dan. Listen, my intellectual property, let me tell you, it's perfectly secure. It's in a separate business entity, and that business entity has its own funding and everything, and we license it back to my main company. I love my IP. The value of my business is in my IP. Now, I need you to help us over the next half hour or so explain what the hell I'm talking about. First, we're going to start. <laughs> we're going to start Dan with what how did you so how did you get into this in the first place? This is like one of my favorite areas of law and I love to hear people always have a story about how they got into intellectual property. How did you get into practicing intellectual property law? I was really good at math and science um, and loved it and thought that I was going to go to college uh, and then grad school, become a physicist, um, finish Einstein's work, um, solve all of the equations uh, to merge quantum physics and general relativity. Um, and go on and live a very happy life as an icon with my picture on t-shirts. Um, as it turns out, uh, <clears throat> I was much better at writing than I was at solving equations. Um, and it's a very hard living to make as a physicist. And I don't know if you know, but nobody's yet solved Einstein's equations and made them work with quantum physics. So I think I set my goals really, really high. Um, in order to do that, you probably had to be a lot smarter than I was. And so at some point, the physics advisor at Northwestern took the uh, three or four of us who were graduating in the next year aside, kind of said, well, here's what it looks like in the physics market. You, um, who scored like 90th percentile on your GRE and have a 4.0, could probably get into Caltech or MIT or Princeton and University of Chicago, and you'll do okay. The two of you who got like 80th percentile in your GRE and have like a 3.6 could maybe get into another grad school and hope to get lucky. And you, who um, I'm not even sure what you're doing here, uh, you might want to consider something else. And so I can't, I'm not going to tell you which one. Uh, I wasn't the first person he was pointing to. Um, and I said, you know, I did that mock trial in fourth grade where I defended Alice in Alice in Wonderland. And... Uh, and had a really good time doing that, uh, I should go back to being a fourth grader and decided to go to law school. Um, and with the only idea of being, I wanted to do IP law. I mean, I still love science. I still read all the physics books and papers that come out. And uh, I love that stuff. 
and I didn't want to be an ambulance chaser. I didn't want to be a divorce attorney. I didn't want to just sit down and do corporate work. I love science. And so you're going to be a lawyer and you love science, you stick with IP law. Okay. So tell us about the, a typical day in the life of Dan Schulman, wannabe physicist turned IP <laughs> lawyer, right? What do you, what is your typical day like? Are you, are you working on uh, transactional stuff? Are you working on litigation matters? Are you doing trademarks, copyrights? What do you, what do you work on on any, on any given day? On any given day, it can be all of the above. And it's really one of the great things about being an intellectual property lawyer is you touch on all disciplines. Um, when I've got litigation going on, I might be in court. I might be arguing an appeal to the Court of Appeals. I might be drafting briefs. I might be taking depositions. Uh, when I don't have litigation going on, I might be drafting license agreements. I might be reviewing agreements. I might be reviewing patent applications. I spend a lot of time on Zoom calls and talking to the clients about their strategy, trying to figure out what should you be doing next. Um, not even what should you be doing next, what should you be doing first? Because a lot of my clients are in the early stage mode and it's really important for them to get their IP protection early on so they don't screw it up when the investors come calling and they find out, mm, we didn't actually protect it and our IP walked out the door. Well, so did all the value the investors wanted to give you. Um, I spent a lot of time mentoring my associates. Uh, I think that's really important. I had really great mentors when I was coming up. Uh, it's really a every kind of legal discipline you can do in IP law. And I, and I love it. And I'm dealing with, with clients who are doing really interesting things. And, and I don't have to deal with a lot of the... Um, a lot of the emotional stuff that gets wrapped into other areas of law. You know, God bless the family lawyers. God bless the personal injury lawyers. Um, I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't. I don't want to get wrapped up in that in that kind of the angst that comes with somebody losing their children or losing their lives or losing a limb. God bless all my clients, but all we're doing is arguing about money, and it's a lot of could be a lot of money, and it's really important to them. But nobody dies in a patent infringement case. Um, and so it makes it a very rewarding way for me to practice. Okay. So people who listen to the show know that we talk about, we, we do, we talk a fair amount about intellectual property here. So, um, I, I don't need you to get into the details, but give everybody kind of just an overview of, uh, copyright, trademark, you know, patent, uh, you know, who uses what, just a very, just touch the surfaces, uh, of those for the people who are listening, who may not be lawyers. Sure. So, so I'll give you, I'll, I'll go even a step higher than that, right? Um, intellectual property is just a means to provide you exclusivity over the thing that you do differently, right? The great thing to do with any, that any of your clients should think about, anybody who's listening, or if you're a lawyer, you know, to talk to any of your clients, ask them two questions. Do you do the exact same thing as your competitor exactly the same way? Right? The answer is almost always going to be no, because if it were yes, you'd have no reason to be in business. So that means they've got something worth protecting. So now ask them, do you know what it is, where it is, and how you're protecting it? Because they need an intellectual property lawyer. Now, how to protect it, that's the intellectual property lawyer's job. You know, I don't create my clients' differences. 
I make their differences stay different because that's the only way they can charge more money or gain market share. That could be a patent if there is a unique new way that they've done something. We can get patents on new things that have come up that haven't been done before and that aren't obvious inventions. We can, if their branding really tells the difference between them and their competitors. Uh, trademarks represent the goodwill that you have in, the, in, in commerce with your customers. That goodwill is valuable. When they see your trademark, they know, I want such and such brand. Even if nothing else is different about the product, the branding is different. That drives value. Uh, if it's software, if it's a book, if it's a movie script, if it's a picture, if it's a sculpture, and you don't want that stuff copied, and it's a fixed expression in a tangible medium, like paper, you know, like um, on a computer disc, uh, in a sculpture, that's copyright. Copyright protects people from copying fixed expressions. And then there's trade secrets. Trade secrets are unlike the other stuff because they don't get public. Trade secrets are the things that you know that you derive value from because your competitors don't know it. It doesn't necessarily have to be independently valuable. It could be really, really simple. But the point is that you derive value because your competitors don't know what you know. Could be how your machines run in your factory, what your secret formula is if you're Coca-Cola or Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, it could be the way that you get and retain customers. Could be your trade secret. Um, almost every company has trade secrets. Very few have patents. A lot of companies, especially if they're not consumer facing, don't have trademarks. If they're not creating, you know, unique expression, they don't have copyrights, but they do something different or they do it in a different way. That's a trade secret. And if you are letting your competitors know, letting your employees walk out the door with that knowledge so that they could go work for a competitor, you lose that intellectual property. You can't be different anymore. So. I really get my clients to focus on that know-how because all of them have it. And it's really the least expensive thing to protect. I don't have to file it with the government. I just need to protect it. And that's, um, that's part of what the intellectual property lawyer does. All right. So talk a little bit about trade secrets. So every company has it. And maybe let's say in my business, it's um, it's perhaps the um, the way that I help clients identify their ideal client. Right. So I work in the B2B space or I got a better example. Let's take my, my wife has a business where she makes flan. It's like a custard dessert. And she's actually got a, she's been invited to participate in the South Beach Food and Wine Festival, which is a huge uh, food show. Everybody loves her flan. How would she go about protecting uh, the trade secret that is not necessarily the recipe, but how she combines the ingredients to make the flan taste different? How does she protect that trade secret? Well, so the first thing is just on, on a, at a high level, only people who should know your trade secrets are the people who have a need to know, right? So first off, identify the people, if there's anybody beyond you, that actually needs to know the trade secret. Uh, Coca-Cola is a great example. I'm willing to bet that there is not a single person in Coca-Cola that knows what the formula is. There are people in procurement that know to buy this ingredient. 
There are other people responsible for knowing to buy this ingredient. There are other people that are responsible to know for knowing that what comes out of tube A, you mix with tube B without knowing what's in tube A and tube B, right? Um, there is probably no single person in Coca-Cola who knows the Coca-Cola formula. It's probably locked in a vault, literally somewhere. Um, two, if there are people, you know, and you do have staff and you do have workers and you have people that have to implement things, you need to have non-disclosure agreements with them where they agreed not to disclose it, not to use it. Uh, you need to have physical or electronic barriers if it's on a server somewhere um, who has access. If it's something that's written down, where do you put it? Where do you keep it? And then you need to enforce those guardrails. You need to make sure that the non-disclosure agreements aren't dead letter. You need to make sure that if it is in a server that you are monitoring use. Uh, you need to make sure that when employees are leaving, you're doing exit interviews to find out what they knew, what they were responsible for, so you can target them as potential leaks of your trade secrets. Um, you need sort of an overall comprehensive policy that keeps the trade secret with the people who know it and not beyond the people who know it. And then as you go out, and if you have to disclose it to business partners because you're in some sort of joint development, um, those agreements need to account for the fact that your business partners can't use what you teach them to compete against you. Okay, so it's uh, for trade secrets, then it's just a specific policy and having that policy in place and getting anybody who you do disclose it to judiciously, they have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Now, um, copyright, you, you mentioned software, um, you mentioned, we all know songs, right? We know the written word can be protected through copyright. Trademarks are mostly marks that are unique to you or, you know, connote or denote, I'm sorry, denote what, uh, what your brand is, uh, is all about. And they need, people need to come to you before, well, before you file, you need to do a search to make sure that that mark is truly unique and protectable, right? Explain, explain how that works. Yeah. So, so look, when you go to market and whether it's with a good or a service, and you brand it, right? The idea is that you want consumers to recognize that brand, recognize the source behind it, say, I recognize that, I associate that with a particular source that I trust in, that I believe in, that I know I'm going to get the same quality of good or service every time, right? When you see a Big Mac, whether you're in Beijing or Boise, you know you're gonna get the same quality. Might not be good quality, but you know you're gonna get the same quality, right? Um, it's all about the consumer awareness. A trademark has no independent value beyond the consumer awareness, right? Um, so what that means is if the consumer is aware of the mark and is confused about it being something else because somebody else has that mark already, you'd be committing an act of trademark infringement by adopting it. Trademark infringement occurs when there's a likelihood of confusion. So you don't want to adopt a mark or a brand or a logo or a slogan that evokes something else that would cause a consumer to think, that's not you, that's somebody else, somebody who already has those rights. Um, so it's really important before you adopt something like that to search and make sure nobody else has it for two reasons. One, you don't want to infringe. More importantly, for a consumer to make that association, your mark has to be distinctive. Right? If it's not distinctive, they won't know who it is. They won't think of you. They'll think of a million other things. That's why generic words can't function as trademarks. 
right? Because they mean everything to everybody. So you also don't want to adopt a mark that's not distinctive, that there's a lot of variants already out there, that it'd be really hard to isolate who you are because the field is so crowded. So you want to select a mark that nobody's used and that there's, there's, it's distinctive in that marketplace. Okay, so the question comes up all the time. How, so how does Apple get, uh, you know, how do they trademark their name when it literally grows on trees, right? Explain to folks how that works. Yeah, so, so again, it has to be distinctive. They couldn't trademark Apple if they were selling apples, right? Because it would be descriptive or generic of an apple. Uh, but there's this continuum, there's a spectrum of strength of marks. At the very end of the spectrum is a mark that is either fanciful or made up, right? Um, a made up word is a great mark. It's distinctive. Apple is a great mark because it doesn't have, because computers don't have anything to do with apples. So when you see Apple, it doesn't immediately evoke computers until a company like Apple says, this is about computers and invests all the marketing behind it. And now it's distinctive, right? Apple is distinctive for computers because you would have never thought of computers. Apple's also distinctive for vacations, which is why you can hear commercials for Apple vacations and nobody gets confused. Why? Because nobody goes, nobody associates, oh, the company that makes the iPhone is also sending me on an all expense straight paid trip to Cancun, right? There's no likelihood of confusion there because they're distinctive in their own realms. Okay. So... Talk to us about the typical client engagement when a client comes to you. So a client, um, a client has a, a portfolio, let's say, of work. They have a lot of, uh, they have a training course, and they have twelve volumes of a training course. And they sit down and they go, Dan. So here's here's my, you know, here's my training course. I'm going to create a unique name for it, and then we'll trademark the name. And then do you take each module of that training course and then file for copyright protection on it, or do you? Do you protect it as a compilation? So you could do it any number of ways, and it probably depends on whether or not it's being marketed as a compilation or it's being marketed as a compilation and individual modules that you might be able to get separately. Um, so certainly copyright is one area that, that you would explore and you'd, and you'd register those copyrights. Um, you'd search the brands, the trademarks, the names and the logos for whatever online university or training company it is. Names for the courses could be trademarks, they might not be, depending on if you're using them as branding or just describing the, the name. You might have a course naming convention, kind of like the, the MIC for McDonald's, that you apply to all of your training courses. Um, that would be subject to trademark. Um, you might have software that uh, implements the training course uh, that uh, maybe it works off of consumer feedback. Maybe there's some machine learning, so it continually makes the, the course more relevant. That could be a trade secret. Could also be patentable technology. Um, if you've got a particular method for increasing results, again, that could be patentable. Um, so we would look at all of those different things. The other thing that, that's really important to keep in mind you know, you think about the four kind of fundamental forms of intellectual property, patents, trademarks, copyright, trade secret. But as I said at the outset, intellectual property is really a means to gain you exclusivity. 
And sometimes it's none of those four things. So for example, let's say I'm making something that I can't get a patent on. I'm not in the B2C business. I don't really have a trademark. I'm doing a lot of manufacturing. I don't really have any copyrights. And, you know, let's say everybody can manufacture these. The trade secret's not that relevant. But there's a particular widget that I need in order to make this product work. And only one company has that widget, or a very limited number of companies have that widget. Well, how do I get exclusivity? I have an exclusive supplier agreement with my widget supplier. If nobody else can get that widget, I can always I can make a superior product. Now that's not patent, that's not trademark, that's not copyright, that's not trade secret, but it is gaining exclusivity through smart agreements with your suppliers. So in your example, Dave, if um, if there's a particular supplier that's providing me certain data, certain analytics, some module, some engine that lets me do what I'm doing, I think of intellectual property in terms of how I go out to my suppliers and lock up that supply because anything that generates exclusivity to me is a form of intellectual property. And, and if you ignore that and let your suppliers supply things that are essential to you to others, you might erode your exclusivity. And it might cost you more to pay for exclusivity, but if there's value in having that exclusivity, you pay more for that. Yeah, that's a great point. I think it's I, I think it's a really interesting thing for people to at least consider exploring. All right, so Dan, I'm going to ask you a question now, and I want you to take a minute and think about it. the The question is where so we're uh, we're a small company, let's say, and we're and we're doing something, and uh, where what we're doing is different than everybody else, and we're using our intellectual property to do it. We're using our name and our, let's say our name is, um, you know, uh, I don't know, ABC, but ABC is unique, let's say. And all of a sudden, somebody in the same industry decides that they're going to say that they're using the ABC process. I want to know what we're supposed to do to protect that intellectual property. All right. So actually, let's use use the word Mixelplick, Superman's arch enemy. Right. So because it seems different than ABC. So we're going to talk about what we need to do when we see an infringer. And we're going to talk about it in just one minute. I need to remind you folks that are listening, folks that are watching, that we are brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. For over 35 years, Sandrowski has provided expert client service to folks all over the United States. Now, they have offices in Detroit. They have offices in Chicago, but they work all over the place. And they do a whole host of things related to accounting, whether it's forensic accounting, risk management, business valuations, litigation support, family office advisory, dispute advisory. They can help you with all of that. And one of the things that I introduce folks to Sandrowski Corporate Advisors for help with all the time is in business valuations. So you want to sell your business. Let's say it's time for you to exit your business. You want to sell it, but you don't know how to price your business. You know what your competitors may have offered you for your business, but you don't know if that's a fair price. Reach out to Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. Make sure your books are in order. And even if they're not, Sandrowski will make, you know, put them in order. But Sandrowski will work with your accounting team to value your business. And you will understand exactly what your business is worth. And then you can set a fair price. Now, if you're on the other side of the equation and you're looking to buy a business, you can call Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. And as long as the person who's selling the business is open to them reviewing their books, Sandrowski will tell you, hey, based on what we see here, this is what we think your break-even point would be. This is what we think you need to do in revenue in order to incorporate this business and make a profit. 
Think about how valuable this can be. Now, there's another aspect of this that I think is essential. If you're an entrepreneur or you're someone who's independent and you're in business for yourself, you have a privately held business and you want to sell it, when you sell that business, you're going to get a windfall and that windfall is subject to taxes. If you want to limit your tax exposure, you got to call Sandrowski about five years or so before you're ready to sell. They will help you put your business in order so that when you're ready to sell your business, you'll pay the least amount of taxes possible. Look, the best time to call them would have been when you started your business. They could have got you set up from the beginning. The second best time to call them is right now. Reach out to them at 866-717-1607-866-717-1607. 1607 Sandrowski Corporate Advisors is a CPA firm with a different perspective. We're also brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. This is my own intellectual property. It's very well protected, but I'm going to give you this guide for free. Now, why am I doing this? I want to say thank you for watching our show, for listening to the show. All you need to do is go to revenueroadmapguide.com, enter your contact information there. You'll be able to instantly download my guide and customize it for you and for your professional practice. This is the same guide I use with other consultants. I use it with architects, with engineers, lawyers, CPAs, anyone who wants to build a book of business based on relationships. This guide will help you. It is a complete marketing plan from A to Z. It's going to help you get more clients and it's free. RevenueRoadmapGuide.com. Enter your contact info download it today. We're speaking with Dan Schulman. He's an intellectual property attorney. He's a shareholder at Better Price. You can reach him at 312-609-7530. 312-609-7530. All right, Dan. So we got some bad actors and they're infringing, right? And I come running into your office and I go, Dan, look at this. These guys, they've taken my name, Mixelplick, and they're using it to do the exact same thing in the exact same industry. What happens then? All right, so so first of all, we're gonna make sure that you actually have the rights that you think you have. I can't tell you how many times clients call me up thinking that there's somebody infringing and only to find out, yeah, you don't actually have those rights. Uh, actually, they own them uh, and you were using their rights or you didn't register it, whatever, whatever the deal is. So we're gonna make sure, right? If it's a trademark issue, do you have the trademark registered? Now, if you don't, that's not fatal you can still sue for trademark infringement under what's called common law rights. You just have a little bit harder road to hoe, if that's what you're going to do. Um, Want to make sure that, is that the only thing that they're doing? Are they misappropriating anything else? Is there anybody at the company that's maybe a former employee, somebody who knows something? Are there trade secrets being misappropriated? Are there other materials, copyrighted materials? Are they selling something that you have patented? Let's make sure we have all of the, all of the facts. The other really important thing, and we don't go any further until I get an answer to this question, what are you trying to accomplish? Um, Patent litigation, trademark, any kind of litigation, uh, it's like flying a plane. You don't take off unless you know where you're going to land. And litigation is a really blunt instrument. It takes a long time and a big expense, and at the end of the day, if you go all the way through trial, there's a winner and a loser. And most cases, a lot of cases, the winners lose because they spend a lot of money, takes a lot of time, and they walk away unsatisfied. Um, So anticipate that well over 95% of cases are going to settle, which means you'll get to choose how you want to land the plane. Know that in advance. You have to know where you want to land. Do you want them to stop? 
you want them to grant a license? Do you want to grant them a license and get a royalty? Are you willing to let them use the mark in some other areas where you're not exactly competitive as a way of resolving the case? Might not be the perfect resolution, but you'll save a whole lot of attorney's fees if you do that. The business has to give me an answer to the question. And when I was in-house, which I was for 12 years, uh, I never went to outside counsel to litigate, no matter how often the executives stomped their feet in my office that we needed to do something, unless they told me what, that they had a plan for where they wanted to land. That step gets skipped so often, it's, it's really, really hard uh, to keep things online if you don't have a strategy. Let's assume that you've got that litigation is the best way to go. You're going to litigate, right? So you, you might send them a letter trying to play nice, trying to get them to stop. Uh, you might do that with a complaint to try to put some more pressure on them. You might suggest early mediation if you've identified a place where you think it's reasonable to land. If none of that happens and you have to litigate, you have to understand what the costs are. You have to get all your documents ready. Your attorney will help you collect documents. Make sure you don't have any bad evidence. Make sure you're not doing anything that they could counterclaim and sue you for. And then you're off and running. And, you know, three years later in a coin flip in front of a jury, you know, I tell clients, uh, in a lot of ways, I'd much rather litigate North Korea because then I know who's going to win. Um, you know, the U.S. is a tough place to litigate IP cases in front of juries, you know. Uh, the best I ever tell a client is I'd rather have your case, I'd rather have my case or our case than theirs. Yeah, it's hard to give a percentage. You can't guarantee anything. Things happen. There's bad documents. There's something you didn't anticipate. And um, you just got to be prepared, which is why cases settle. But So it, during this whole thing, during this whole time, though, you're, can you get an injunction to get them to stop using the mark? Or do they get to keep using the mark and maybe devalue it along the way? Yeah, it, it is really hard to get injunctions. Now, for trademark cases, it's a little bit easier, right? Um, in order to get an injunction, you have, to, you have to have a really strong case because you have to prove to the court that after all the evidence is in, you are more likely than not to succeed, and you have to show them that you're being irreparably harmed, that they need to act quickly. But an injunction could take months because you still have to have a hearing, you still have to have evidence, and it's expensive. Um, but people do it. Uh, people ask for it. That's a great amount of leverage. And you have to know your opponent. You have to know what is their stomach for the fight. Uh, right. Sometimes filing for an injunction, which will be just as expensive for them, is enough to facilitate a quick settlement. Yeah. Okay. So now let's talk about you and who your ideal client is. Who's the perfect client for Dan Shulman? Any company for whom innovation is important because they have intellectual property and they might not know where it is, what it is, and how they're protecting it. Uh, and, okay. and so I can help, I can help them with any variety of strategies. All right. Now, do you prefer to work with people who have patents that need protecting or with people who have, um, other types of intellectual property? So like in the entertainment industry, like a musical, uh, a music artist, they have a ton of intellectual property and they're always creating new IP. So they need constant protection. Or, you know, an inventor who comes up with a new invention maybe once every seven or eight years. Which is, which is your preference? I like working for them both, and I like to have a balance in my practice. Um, about half of my clients, and I do all forms of intellectual property, so I'm not really specific in that regard. I like all of it. 
about half of my clients are really mature companies. They have intellectual property. They have intellectual property strategies. It's a part of what they do. And I'm helping them with that strategy. Um, I have another half of my clients who are early stage companies, maybe novice about what they're doing, maybe have a general counsel, but no in-house IP counsel to really help the strategy. And for those clients, I kind of leverage my in-house experience to be their outside in-house general you know, IP counsel and coach them on building a culture of innovation, doing things the right way uh, so that they don't get themselves in trouble and they build the right techniques, strategy, and culture. Culture is a huge part of it in the corporate world, having the right culture of innovation and intellectual property protection. So uh, that's great. I want you to give specific advice to a group of people who I think always get taken advantage of. I know because I am one of them. That's authors, right? So I, I self-published one book and I obviously own all the rights. I can do whatever I want with those rights. The second book I did, I did with a, with a niche publisher, with a publisher in a niche market. And he said, hey, listen, the real value in this, in this book for me is it's going to attract people to my website design business for lawyers. So I like to have people write books for lawyers because then they find out about my website design business. So here's what we'll do. We're going we're gonna to share the rights to the book, but you can do anything else you want with that. You can make videos using that content and, you know, you can do anything else. And then after like five years, I'll give you the, you know, it was, it was spelled out in the contract after five years it wasn't like five years or five years i'll give you the rights to the book back and then you can publish the book on your own and that i thought was a great deal and then the third one i published through a, a major international publisher who i'm not going to mention here but you can go on amazon and find my you put in my name you'll find the book and you'll see who the publisher is and you know there i think I probably got beat up a little bit on the rights. I probably didn't do as well as I could have. I was just so excited that they wanted to publish my book that, you know, I kind of let a lot of stuff go. If you're an author and somebody comes to you and they say, hey, I want to make a book deal, what should you be thinking about? I mean, I want people to hear it from you because I could talk about it until I'm blue in the face based on my experience, but you actually know the law. Yeah, and, and to piggyback on what you said, Dave, the law part and the business part are really separate. The business part of publishing books is really, really crappy, right? Um, people don't make money publishing books. Uh, even the book publishers don't make money on most of the books that they publish, right? So so what you experience with your big book, book publisher, not that surprising, right? They beat you up on rights. They make it very hard for you to make money. Um, they publish a lot of books that don't make money, and they subsidize that with the books that do, right? Um, so from a business standpoint, I'm just gonna tell you it's really hard to work with a big publisher. Fortunately, there's a lot of self-publishing avenues these days. There seem to be, you know, Amazon, Kindle Direct is a really good good way to do it. Um, there are other places, I'm sure, you know, I'm not gonna be an advertisement for all the different individual self-publishing outlets, but they're good too. From a legal standpoint, you hit the nail on the head. What rights do you have to the manuscript, right? Um, are you owning the copyright? Are you responsible for getting the ISBN number and registering the copyright? Typically, you should register the copyright yourself in your own name before you go shop it around so it's already registered. Um, and then just pay attention to what rights you have to the book in additional formats, audiobook rights, 
Kindle rights, right? Just because somebody agrees to publish a hard copy doesn't mean they automatically get Kindle rights, right? Or ebook rights. Um, if you're lucky enough to turn it into a movie, do you have adaptation rights? Um, all of those rights you can preserve, and so you just want to be very intentional about what rights you're giving the publisher. The royalty piece, you're going to get taken advantage of by a publisher, right? And you may, yeah, and you and may there, even, there's certain yeah. things that I, my experience is there's certain things they just don't care about. Like they don't care. Like I could, I could do, I could take my entire book content and deliver it as a full day presentation. They wouldn't care about that. But the minute I want to sell the rights to the Korean translation, they're all over me. They want to do that. So there's certain things they, they, that they're, there's certain things you can ask for that they will immediately give you. But if you don't know to ask, you're not going to get it. So I, I, I think you need a lawyer no matter what if you're, if you're entering into any type of contract, but especially a publishing contract. Yeah, you, you do. And, and again, it's just being intentional about what do you want to do with this intellectual property? What are all the possibilities? All right, so Dan, there's a lot of lawyers who listen to the show. There's also a lot of, a lot of accountants, a lot of professionals. If they want to refer business to you, what's the best way uh, like for them to get their client ready to come to you? So you know, do they, do they need to make sure, what, what, what stuff do they have to have together before they walk into your office for the first time? You know, I, I wish there was a, a package of materials they hand me. Usually it's just a phone call and they just need to explain their business. And it's for me to figure out, all right, I understand what you have. Here's the next steps. So really it goes back to, you know, the two questions I think I alluded to earlier and getting answers to those questions. Do you do the exact same thing as your competitors exactly the same way? Sure, the answer is no. And that means you have intellectual property. Do you know where it is, what it is, and how you're protecting it? And if the answer is no, or I'm not sure, all you have to do is say, then talk to somebody who can help you sort that out. Um, and I'll know where to start. I'll know what questions to ask. But if you come to me and say, I've got innovation in my business. I'm not sure I'm protecting it. Can you help me? I'll get on the phone with you for a half an hour and, and just talk it through, try to come up with a strategy. And if you want to work with me, great. If you're not, if not, you know, go find somebody else to work with. No pride of authorship. But um, usually if I can get half an hour with people, try to explain to them what I do for them, it works out. All right. So you can reach Dan at 312-609-7530, 312-609-7530. He's a shareholder at Vetter Price. I'm going to put all of his contact information in the show notes. Now, Dan, I'm going to ask you for three things that people should take away from our time together, three things that you think uh, we should highlight for them. I'm going to ask you to give those to me in just one minute. I want to remind the folks that we are brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. So you need help with your accounting. You have, uh, you have a bookkeeper and your business has grown beyond the scope of what the bookkeeper can do. Or... You have a bookkeeper and a controller and your business is doing okay, but you're you're noticing that they're having a hard time keeping up and there may be some irregularities with your books. What do you do? You call Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. You see, they're a CPA firm with a different perspective, but that doesn't mean they only handle one-off unique cases. They will come in and they'll, they'll help you get your business straightened out. They will look at your books. They will look at your entire financial strategy. If you are 
in any way concerned about the way that your books are being handled, give Sandrowski Corporate Advisors a call. Let them take a look. They can also help you when you're buying or selling a business. They can help you if you're involved in litigation by either doing valuations of the business or by testifying uh, as to whether there was fraud or some sort of malfeasance or just negligence. They do this sort of thing all the time. And one of the things I like to say, and no offense to my friends who are judges, but Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, they can explain the accounting in a way that's so easy, even a judge can understand it. They're that good. (laughs) All you need to do if you want to get Sandrowski Corporate Advisors involved is call them at 866-717-1607, Give them a call today. Their perspective will help you make sure you're on the straight and narrow when it comes to your accounting. We're also brought to you by my Revenue Roadmap Guide. All you need to do is go to that website, revenueroadmapguide.com, revenueroadmapguide.com. That is your ticket to a business development plan that you can take and implement in your business right now. After this show is over, you can just download the guide, get to work. You'll walk through the seven steps to a business development plan. It's the same guide I use with my clients. You can customize it for your professional practice. Revenueroadmapguide.com, download your copy today. All right, Dan, what are the three things folks should take away from our show today about intellectual property? All right, let me use an example. Your intellectual property is like a Rubik's Cube, right? When you're starting out as a company, right, or anytime, when you get that Rubik's Cube out of the box, it's in perfect shape, except for this one, it's old, some pieces have fallen off, right? If you don't pay attention to it, Everybody who walks by your house is going to be tempted to mess with it. They might take it, you know, and if you if you pay pretty close attention to it, but not enough, maybe it just turns a little bit and that you can probably restore. But if you ignore your intellectual property over time, everybody who comes into the house is going to mess with it. They're going to pull it apart. They're going to screw it up. It could walk out of the house and it could end up looking like this and now what do you do right what do you do then when you got to put your intellectual property got to get your intellectual property in a protectable mode back to where it was and that's when you've got to really find a lawyer that knows how to put the intellectual property back together and can help you uh really align your strategy and get it right so a couple of things that i would say number one pay attention to intellectual property earlier rather than later it's all it could be too late by the time you realize somebody's messed up your rubik's cube number two you have to have a culture of innovation in your company your intellect your your folks have to know what they're doing is important to the company so let me give you an example you've got a machine in your company and you've got to get a guy or woman in in whose job it is to make one of these 50 machines in your manufacturing base run smoothly. And that's all that person does. And that person figures out a way to pull the knobs and the levers to make that machine run more smoothly. That If that person doesn't realize that that person has generated intellectual property and doesn't share that, and you don't share that with the rest of the people in your business, but not outside your business, you've got 49 machines that are running inefficiently. Right. So, but if you have a culture of innovation where the people in the company understand that they're creating something and you let people know what that is and you protect it, now all of your machines are running way more efficiently. 
So what's the last thing that you should do? The last thing is uh, make sure that if you have an intellectual property question, if you feel like there's something that's gone wrong, call an attorney. Call somebody like me. You don't have to know the answer. You don't have to know if it's a patent issue. You don't have to know if it's a trademark issue or a copyright issue. That's for someone like me to figure out. You just have to know that you have innovation and that it needs to be protected. And if you do that, I can help you. I can give you the right roadmap to get your intellectual property protected. So Dave, I hope uh, I hope that answers the question. I hope that gave you three things. This is a little bit. No, like, that's uh, that's three. That's three great things. Let me give folks yep. the phone number again to call 312-609-7530. 312-609-7530. You can call Dan Schulman. He'll take your call. He'll talk to you about your intellectual property and he will help you get it protected. He'll help you make sure that you're not being taken advantage of. Dan, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on today. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and I'm watching while you're, folks, if you're listening to this, I Dan has done one of the most courageous things we've ever had done on the show. <laughs> he's messed up our Rubik's Cube, and now he's going to have a nervous breakdown trying to put the cube back together before, before I end the show. <laughs> so I'm going to do everything I can to give him as much I'm time like as five he needs. moves away. Yeah. <laughs> This is the best. If you're listening to this and you haven't watched this show on YouTube, you got to go to YouTube because Dan right now is only three moves away from fixing the Rubik's Cube to get it back to where no, it was. No, Dave, I, sc- I screwed it up somehow. <laughs> Dan, this was, let me tell you something. This is going to be the greatest ending to a show ever. I really appreciate you being on. It it's was a, fantastic to have you here. It's Thank like two so thirds much. of the way done. I'd have, I'd have finished, I'd almost finished it. Dan, you're the best. I got to have you back to see how this ends. All right. (laughs) All right, folks. That'll do it for this episode of the Inside BS Show. Come back tomorrow. I promise you we'll have Dan Schulman on with a finished Rubik's Cube. Thanks for joining us. Here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life. (laughs) I could do something real quick here. All right. All right. So we're ready to fix it. All right. We got one more move left to go. Should be uh, just about complete. Uh, I think that should do it. There we go.